You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, April 1st, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon updates listeners on campus news, and then I'll be covering a situation with a fatal car crash in Fort Collins. After that, Jonathan Gillum will update us on CSU's athletics, and then you'll be hearing a conversation between Ivy and Colorado Forester Mike Lester about key findings in the Colorado State Forest Service's annual forest health report. Then, Coda will be telling us about President Biden's proposed American Jobs Plan. Since voting is finished for tonight's ASCSU election, we'll be featuring some highlights from the debates. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 statistics. To conclude the show, Koto explains how prisons may be violating rules on attorney-client privilege, and I'll be telling you about how a child accidentally used the Twitter account of a federal agency. Let's move right into campus and local news. Unfortunately, Ellie Shannon, our usual newscaster for Campus News, had some last-minute conflicts and is unable to give updates on Campus News today. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Campus News for Thursday on the Rocky Mountain Review. The Colorado Water Center agreed to fund five projects for Colorado State University for research into water-related environmental issues. According to Angelique Garad at CSU Source, the research teams include one studying the effects of the Cameron Peak fires on food webs along an elevation gradient, and another focuses on fire, fungi, and fluoride in water-limited forests impacted by wildfires. In addition to this, CSU has a water fellowship focusing on developing a 21st century ethic for human relationships with flowing waters, as well as two water education and engagement programs focusing on youth. The Colorado Water Center is one of 54 national institutes for water research. Colorado State University President Joyce McConnell encourages university community members to engage with courageous strategic transformation at the university. According to Kate Jiraki at CSU Source, the university president addressed the need for this initiative during a virtual information panel on March 30th. McConnell said, quote, It's so important that we build on that momentum of what we've learned in responding to a crisis, to being able to plan for the future. We never know what's in front of us, just like COVID, but we do know that change is going to happen, and we can take charge and be prepared to meet challenges that come with change. End quote. ASCSU election voting ended Thursday at 4 p.m. The results will be announced Thursday at 5.30 p.m. local time. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Campus News. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on KCSU Fort Collins. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. A woman was killed in a car crash Tuesday at the intersection of Mulberry Street and 925 Frontage Road. According to a statement by the city of Fort Collins, dispatchers received a 911 call at 4.25 p.m. Tuesday about a serious collision. A 2002 Jeep Cherokee was being driven by an adult woman and was heading west on Mulberry Street, turning left on I-25 Frontage Road, when a semi-truck driven by an adult man traveling eastward collided with the Jeep at the intersection. The driver and only passenger of the Jeep was transported to an area hospital with serious injuries and later pronounced dead. The identity of both drivers has not been released. According to the police statement, the Larimer County Coroner's Office will release the identity, cause, and manner of death at a later time. The Fort Collins Police Service's CRASH, which stands for Collision, Reconstruction, and Scene Handling Team, responded to take over the investigation. 
The crash blocked off Mulberry Street for approximately four and a half hours while investigators processed the scene. Investigators are currently working to determine what led up to the collision and which vehicle had the right of way. Anyone who witnessed the collision but has not already spoken to police is asked to call Officer Koski at 970-416-2229. A volunteer group that advocates for wilderness trails stewardship is raising funds to restore trails destroyed in the 2020 Cameron Peak fires. According to Karen Nicholson at the Denver Post, Pooter Wilderness Volunteers, or PWV, is a nonprofit staffed entirely by about 320 unpaid volunteers. Hosted on GoFundMe, the fundraising effort, called the Reopen Your Favorite Trails campaign, plans to use the donations to help restore trails, fall dead timber along trails, repair and restore bridges in an effort to reopen wilderness areas to the public, according to the news release. PWV board chair says in the release, quote, We all get absorbed by the beauty, the expansive views, and the freedom to explore in the wilderness. Dealing with the impact of the largest fire in Colorado's recorded history is way beyond normal everyday efforts, and we need all the help we can get to restore these trails, end quote. PWV plans to work with the U.S. Forest Service and other local wilderness groups on trail restoration. As of Wednesday afternoon, the campaign raised almost 12,000 of its 25,000 goal. Last year's Cameron Peak Fire, Colorado's largest wildfire, burned more than 208,000 acres, including 122 miles of trails within the burn area in the Roosevelt National Forest. 42 miles of trails are severely damaged, according to the release. Since 2005, PWV volunteers have donated more than 340,000 hours of their time, time which PWV estimates is worth around $7.3 million. Colorado is set to become the first state to provide public housing benefits regardless of immigration status. According to Alex Burness at the Denver Post, Colorado Governor Jared Polis is expected to sign a bill passed by the Colorado Senate Tuesday that would make Colorado the first state in the U.S. to provide housing benefits regardless of immigration status. There are roughly 180,000 people living in Colorado without authorization, according to the American Immigration Council. This segment of the population has been almost entirely barred from public benefits during the pandemic, such as stimulus checks and business grants. The lawmakers set aside $5 million late last year for immigrant families who are in the country without documentation. Under the bill, Coloradoans living in the U.S. without authorization will benefit not only from emergency pandemic housing assistance, but all forms of state housing assistance moving forward. The lead Senate bill sponsor, Denver Democrat Julie Gonzalez, says she's been assured that Governor Jared Polis will sign the bill into law. Tuesday's vote, which came after the House passed it on party lines on March 3rd, was 20 to 14. All Senate Democrats who were present and one Republican, Kevin Priola of Henderson, voted in favor of the bill. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. After the break, we'll be listening to our sports team with the RMR Sports Report. Stay tuned. KCSU wants to hear your thoughts this April. What do you think is going well in the fight against climate change? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts.
Hello and good afternoon, Northern Colorado. It's Jonathan Gillen for your sports updates. And unfortunately, I, I don't have any updates. There are no sports. No, I'm kidding. April Fool's Day. Actually, we have an action-packed, jammed weekend full of sports, starting off with today's events. Women's volleyball travels to New Mexico at New Mexico to face off to their second-to-last game of their season. Women's tennis versus New Mexico was canceled for Friday. Uh, Moving on to Saturday, women's tennis was also canceled versus Air Force. Track and field does their Doug Max Invitational. And softball will face Weber State in Ogden, Utah at 12 p.m. Volleyball will face San Diego State at San Diego at 2 p.m. Mountain Time. And that will be their last game of the season. Women's soccer will face Wyoming at 2 p.m., and that's at home. And softball will play game two of their series against Weber State. And that's all the sporting news for the weekend, all the updates. I hope everyone has a fantastic weekend. For KCSU Sports, I'm Jonathan Gillum, and I'll catch you next time. Today, I am joined by Stake Forester Mike Lester, here to talk with us about the Colorado State Forest Service Service's annual Forest Health Report, published March 1st. Mr. Lester, thanks so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. So just to start, in what ways is this report measuring how healthy Colorado's forests are? Well, we it actually, our, our process is a little different this year. Because of COVID safety protocols, we did not fly nearly as much of the state as we usually do. But typically, this is done with an aerial survey, and we did fly the priority areas. But it, So because of that, we can't really compare the acres uh, infected by insects this year as compared to last year. But the aerial survey is how we generally do that. And then we also have our forest inventory and analysis data, which tells us a lot about forest health and effects of fire. So as many may know, the Cameron Peak Fire burned over 540,000 acres of forest. It was all over the news. Um, So I'm sure the pressing question on everyone's mind is just how damaging was the Cameron Peak Fire on the health of Colorado's forests? All right. uh, First of all, it was about 208,000, I believe. Uh, When you combine Cameron with a uh, troublesome, upper troublesome, I think you get close to 500 plus. But Nonetheless, you know, it's, it's interesting, Ivy, because it is a mixed bag of sorts. There is a lot of lodgepole pine up there, and lodgepole pine typically regenerates when the uh, cones are heated up from fire and they open up and let the seeds down. So where the, the fire was moderate, um, it might actually be setting the forest up for a regeneration. Where it was more intense, we're going to have soils that are hydrophobic. That means the water can't penetrate them. Uh, we're going to lose soil off the mountainsides. So it's all in all, it's pretty devastating, but it's a continuum from we got the regeneration we always need all the way to, uh-oh, we even get a forest back here. So are we likely to see more wildfires like the Cameron Peak Fire in the future? Absolutely. Our forests are not in great condition, and um, and there's just not that much we can control, although there are some things. Uh, we can't control drought. We can only minorly control climate change from the perspective of the forest. Uh, We can't control the wind, but we can do forest management to try to put those forests in a condition more like they've evolved to. And that is something we can do. But I will tell you, the danger is still high for next year and the year after and the year after. We're in a 
And, and we're not trying to eliminate fire. Fire is really important to our force. These are all fire adapted ecosystems, but it's these uncharacteristic fires, like he's troublesome, like Cameron Peak, that really cause us a lot of issues and that we would like to, um, if not prevent, mitigate those. That leads into a great question I wanted to ask, which was that one of the findings was the uh, of the report was that Colorado hasn't been doing enough work to make the forest healthier and do enough work to reduce wildfire risk to communities, air, water supplies, economies. Um, would you be able to explain in what ways Colorado should be trying to safeguard its communities from wildfires? Well, if, if, uh, if you got a chance to read our forest action plan, which came out just before the forest health report, it talks about how much work we really have to do. And we have to do a lot. And the thing about Colorado is um, it's expensive. Um, you go up to Oregon and, and you have some uh, management work to do, but you can actually take some of that material, that um, material that can burn off the land, sell it to somebody, they'll make it into a product of some sort, and it really reduces the price of the uh, or the cost of the of the treatment. Here in Colorado, that's that's not the case. Um, you will pay a logger to take trees off of your land instead of the logger paying you because we just don't have enough milling capacity here in the state. So in the front range, it can be anywhere from three to five thousand dollars per acre to do those kind of treatments. Uh, over in the western slope, when you get close to Montrose Forest products, uh, the <clears throat> price gets you know, pretty close to zero. So it's a uh, it's expensive to do, and we all have limits on our budgets. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service, who are a very important partner, do their very best. As the state forest service, uh, working with our grant programs and other partners, we do our very best. But it's expensive, and we have a capacity issue. Uh, logging in the state of Colorado, uh, the Colorado Timber Industry Association has told me that the average age of a logger is 69 years old. And, that, and this is tough work. Uh, so we we have some capacity issues there as well. I understand that um, while much of the forested land is public, there's also a significant portion of forest that is also privately owned. It, do you think that private owners of this land should be also doing their part to mitigate? Absolutely. Uh, when a fire starts burning, it really doesn't care who owns what, um, but it just rolls. So about 30% of our forest is privately owned, and, and a lot of private forest landowners are doing a lot of work. But but you have to understand that it is it's really expensive for them. So for those of us who own private land, which I'm not one of those, um, if you had to treat 10 acres, you're talking $30,000 or more. Um, so that's pretty steep. And if you are the only person who treats your land, it has made your home somewhat safer. But it's a lot safer if you and all your neighbors treat your land. So the more continued or contiguous rather that those treatments are, the better the chance that your home will survive a uh, uncharacteristic wildfire. So they're they're getting the work done, but it's it's expensive and it's going fairly slow. But Colorado is stepping forward. Uh, the governor has signed a bill in, last week to add six million dollars to our grant funds so we can. I uh, use those with private landowners to help them finance the treatments on their land. So things are happening, but we got a lot, we got to have a lot of work to do. So one of the findings in the report was that um, much of the reason for Colorado's forests 
being in a unhealthy position is due to either drought or insect infestations, uh, beetle kill. Uh, how big of an issue is beetle infestations on Colorado's forests? Well, it's a pretty big issue. And of course, I want to stress that for the most part, um, most of these beetles are native. So they've been here for quite a while. But because of climate change, and you see that in our shorter seasons for snow and our longer seasons for fire, uh, because of climate change, they are behaving somewhat like invas an invasive species. So right now, in the last 20 years, out of our 24 million acres of forest, just over 5,000 acres of them have suffered some significant mortality from beetles, both a mountain pine beetle and more lately, a spruce beetle. So yeah, that's a, that's a significant problem. And of course, beetles like that, they can sense when trees are not healthy. Uh, they're, they pick up on pheromones and for a beetle, they pick it up that a tree's not doing well. It's like, all right, it's dinner time. So it has been a, it has been a problem. It'll probably continue to be a problem. And the other piece of it is it used to be our really cold weather, uh, you know, 30 below or, or more for three or four days at a time used to really keep the beetles in check. It didn't wipe them out, but it really significantly reduced their population. And we don't see much 30 below anymore. I understand one of the findings of the report was that the unhealthy condition of the forests is causing Colorado's forests to emit more carbon dioxide than they absorb. Would you be able to tell us why that is? Sure. So if you think about it, when trees are living, they're putting on growth every year. And that growth is includes carbon. So trees are really great at sequestering carbon when they're healthy. But when a beetle kills a tree, all of a sudden, instead of that tree sequestering carbon, it starts releasing carbon. It goes from being a, a carbon sink to a carbon source. And then when it burns, it happens really quickly. So when beetles kill a tree, I mean, over the next 10, 15 years, that carbon will increasingly be emitted as that tree rots. When it burns, and keep in mind that burning a tree rarely reduces it to ashes. It usually just uh, kills the outer core. But nonetheless, that fire is releasing carbon all the time. So if we can keep our forests healthy and keep fires to the level of how these trees evolved, then we will probably be a net, um, netly, we will net sequester carbon. If we don't and our forests are unhealthy and they die or they burn, of course that kills them as well, uh, then we are emitting carbon. So the healthier we keep our forest, uh, the more carbon we sequester, and the more problems we have with the health of our forest, the more carbon, uh, more our forest emitting a carbon uh, source. All right, and finally, I wanted to ask, what do you think the biggest takeaway from the report should be? Oh, it, it, it is without question that we need to invest in our forest. I think you earlier on, you uh, articulated all the things that our forests do for us. Clean air, clean water, carbon sequestration, wildlife habitat, forest products, um, recreation, all these things that our forests do for us, it's not free. And we need to invest in our forests and keep them healthy. So to me, the take home message is, we get huge benefits from our forests. It's how we identify as Coloradans, but we need to invest in those forests to keep them healthy. 
All right, that is all the questions I have for today. Again, I have been joined by State Forester Mike Lester here talking about the Colorado State Forest Service's annual forest health report. If you want to read the report for yourself, you can do so by visiting the CSU Forage Man Management website at colostate.edu slash forest management. Mr. Lester, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU. We'll be right back. Support for KCSU comes from the Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated with American Family Insurance, with offices located in Fort Collins and Greeley. Protection, peace of mind, and trust has been their priority since 1992. Learn more about Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated and American Family Insurance at lisarinkjob at amfam.com. This is National News Highlights for Thursday. Just as a content warning, this newscast does discuss the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer tried in the death of George Floyd. This does involve quotes from a teenager on witnessing the death. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. President Biden announced an infrastructure proposal that, if implemented, will change transportation, how electricity is generated, internet, speed, water quality, and more. According to Scott Detrow and Tamara Keith at National Public Radio, the American Job Plan includes major changes to infrastructure that both Republicans and Democrats consistently mention wanting. This plan also appeals to a majority of Americans due to the necessary changes it would bring to their daily lives, according to NPR's piece discussing the proposed measure. This proposal would cost $2 trillion and include $115 billion in repairing and rebuilding bridges, highways, and roads, $100 billion towards the expansion of high-speed internet connections across the country, $100 billion to upgrade and build schools, and $100 billion to expand and improve electricity power lines and shift towards renewable energy sources. This plan also includes a focus on addressing racial inequality in the U.S. and plans to help the U.S. economy compete with China. Republicans have addressed concerns over the cost of this plan, but the proposal seems to be of interest to independents and Democrats, which currently make up the majority of Congress. New York legalized cannabis possession and use of up to three ounces. According to Marina Villeneuve at the Associated Press, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the legalization bill Wednesday but the sale of recreational marijuana won't be legal for an additional 18 months to allow the state to plan new regulations for dispensaries. The legalization of marijuana in New York also immediately involves expunging of criminal records for those with cannabis-related convictions. Law enforcement is unable to arrest anyone for public use or possession up to three ounces, so long as it isn't on federal land and they're legally allowed by age. 
Federal land includes university campuses, hospitals, schools, and some workplaces which can prohibit use or possession. Today was the second day of the Derek Chauvin trial related to the fatal arrest of George Floyd. Witnesses spoke on the trauma of witnessing Floyd's death. According to the New York Times, many of the witnesses were children and teenagers. Darnella Frazier, the teenager who recorded his death in a video watched globally, gave her emotional testimony explaining that Floyd's cries for help continue to haunt her. Frazier said, quote, When I look at George Floyd, I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends, and I look at that, and I look at how that could have been one of them, end quote. Other witnesses included high school students and a firefighter, among others. The lawyer of Chauvin, the officer responsible for Floyd's death, said that the police officers felt threatened by the crowd of witnesses and became distracted in the moments leading up to Floyd's death. The prosecution has worked hard to portray these witnesses as ordinary people who are fearing for Floyd's life as well as their own. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now we're going to be hearing some highlights from the presidential ASU debates. Unfortunately, today's presidential debate was having some technical difficulties in loading into our studio, so instead we're going to be listening to a feature of the KCSU Music Podcast, and today's episode is really focused on how people can find careers in music outside of performance. Hello and welcome to the KCSU Music Podcast, brought to you by 90.5 FM KCSU. I'm Lindsay, the music director here at KCSU, and today I'm going to help you find a job in music. Maybe you're like me and have accepted that no one will pay you to sing, but intend to work music into your career anyway. Fortunately, there's lots of options, both outside of and within the music industry. I don't make any promises about salary or benefits, but hey, if you're more interested in the experience rather than, you know job security, keep listening. A good place to start is to consider your strengths. What do you already have a background in and is there crossover in music there? Are you tech savvy, good with people, a master of organization, or willing and able to move a lot of equipment? These are all applicable traits of those working outside of the spotlight of the music industry. Let's start out with event technicians, otherwise known as roadies. This is the nickname for the road crew that travels with touring bands and musicians, and many different occupations fall under this term. Stage managers, soundboard and lighting technicians, equipment movers, and quote-unquote frustrated musicians who aspire to play on stage but currently maintain the instruments of the touring band are all jobs taken on by roadies. It truly takes a village to bring a band on tour, especially if they're a big deal, but many who have actually held these jobs are quick to remind that there's very little glory behind the scene. As stated in his book, Roadie, A True Story, at least the parts I remember by Carl Quenning, life on the road can be a chaotic mix of hurry up and wait and sleep deprivation, as well as a surrounding culture of substance abuse, which unfortunately has long since been seen as a normal part of this lifestyle, from lead singers to those driving the van. A typical day for an event technician is dependent on the context and the size of the tour. 
but touring professional Andy Reynolds explains that setup for a show should start around 1 p.m. so that the band's sound check can happen around 3, leaving plenty of time for any troubleshooting before doors open for the show, typically around 7 that evening. This is a jack-of-all-trades position that will offer a lot of different kinds of insight and experiences, as well as the chance to catch a concert from the back of the stage rather than the front, if you've ever been curious about what happens before the show and after the curtain falls. If it's not the live show aspect, but rather the production of music you're interested in, you might consider looking into being a studio songwriter or engineer. This involves working with musicians to build a song, from the earliest idea to the end product. It's generally helpful to know how to play at least one instrument to contribute sound bites and ideas as a song is being made, although it's not completely necessary. What is necessary, according to Grammy award-winning mastering engineer Emily Lazar, is listening to absolutely all different kinds of music, whether it's older, contemporary, familiar, or completely odd, or perhaps even pushing the lines of what you thought music was. She also advises learning all you can about equalization, conversion, and compression processes. Developing an ear for how a certain instrument or tone should sound will open the door to helping create songs with intention. Kind of like learning the rules so you know how to break them. There's also a ton of technological understanding that goes into this job, from placement of microphones to different kinds of recording equipment, and getting to know computer programs like Logic or Pro Tools to edit and manipulate recordings is essential. It's all about finding ways to carry out the creative vision brought forth by either you or the artist, and having the confidence to express it. Lastly for today, it's important to note that there are tons of ways to have your work involve music without actually working in the music industry. And there's actually a lot of crossover between music and other vocations if you're willing to get creative. For example, music therapy is the clinical use of music to address physical, emotional, and cognitive needs of individuals. Music therapists provide treatment by advising the creation of songs, singing, or moving to music that either they or the patient has deemed supportive to their well-being. It can be a powerful and engaging way of communication for those who have difficulty expressing themselves. It's been proven to help people of all ages with a myriad of issues, such as brain injuries, substance abuse problems, and even chronic pain. Music has been considered a healing influence since the writings of Aristotle and Plato, and, after both world wars, community musicians often went to hospitals to play for veterans suffering from both physical and emotional trauma. Music therapy is an incredible crossover between human well-being and simply listening to powerful songs. are tons of other ways to make your work about music, and these are just a few ideas to get the ball rolling if you're still wondering how to make that happen. There are many different aspects to this amazing force that we all love so much, and it's exciting to consider the ways in which you might get involved. 
And hey, you could always see if your local radio station is hiring. Once again, I'm Lindsay, and thanks for tuning in to the KCSU Music Podcast. Until next time. You just heard KCSU's music podcast with the focus on finding a career in music as told by our own music director, Lindsay. So now we're going to be shifting into a quick break, but make sure to stay tuned because after the break, we're going over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and information. We'll be right back. KCSU wants to hear your thoughts this April. What do you think is going well in the fight against climate change? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts. KCSU Fort Collins, it's time for the Ramblers. Hey you, yeah you, want more of the closest play-by-play and analysis of CSU live sports, including volleyball, baseball, club hockey, and pregame analysis for football games? At KCSU, we give you live sports updates all year around. Support KCSU Sports through our biannual DJ-a-thon fundraiser this April 5th through the 10th. Help us keep the sports you love around by calling 970-491-5278 and joining the 905 Club with donations as little as $7.50 or donate online at kcsufm.com slash donate. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard some highlights from the ASCSU presidential debate. And I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports nearly 3,000 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty at the university. This increased by eight students Wednesday with just over a week until spring break, when students living in residence halls will be sent home for the summer. Classes are shifting online after spring break, which begins next Friday. Larimer County, which reports a high-risk score related to COVID-19 transmission, reports over 22,000 cases and 231 deaths as of Wednesday night. On the third edition of the state-style framework, Lamar County ranks as a level yellow concern. 409 outbreaks are reported in the county, and nearly 170,000 vaccinations have been administered. The county reports 47 new cases Wednesday, and every day in the past two weeks saw a minimum of 15 new daily cases. Larimer County's 14-day case rate is 352 per 100,000 residents, which is considered high. 21 COVID patients received treatment in area hospitals, and hospital utilization reached 70% Tuesday, where it currently remains. Intensive care units are at 73% capacity in the county. 
The state of Colorado reports over 462,000 cases and over 6,100 deaths related to COVID-19. 2.7 million people received testing, and the state reports over 4,200 outbreaks. 1 million people are fully immunized in the state, while 1.6 million have received their first dose. Friday, vaccinations become available for all Coloradans. More information can be found at covid19.colorado.gov or at vaccinefinder.org. The United States reports 30.4 million cases of COVID-19 nationwide, with an increase of over 68,000 Wednesday. Over 551,000 people died from COVID-19, with an increase of over 1,000 on Wednesday. In the past 14 days, cases increased by 17% and deaths decreased by 26%. Hospitalizations are beginning to rise nationally. The best methods in COVID-19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks, and keeping social distance from others outside of your household. Those with one or both vaccinations are still expected to wear face masks as they could be asymptomatic carriers of the virus. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Now for tech news. Hello, my name is Louise, and I am a grad student at the archaeology program at Colorado State University, and I want to tell you a little bit about the story of the council tree. This is a story about the northern Arapaho gathering space in the Cachalapooter Valley in what is now Fort Collins, Colorado. But more broadly, this is a story about community and about the importance of space. Before we can get to the council tree, let's first set the stage of what Colorado was like before early Euro-Americans settled here in the mid-1800s. People have been living on these lands for at least the last 13,000 years. The Front Range of Colorado has long been a top choice to move to because of its wealth of resources, like wild game, fertile land, and abundance of water. An archaeological site called Lindenmire, just north of modern Fort Collins, has some of the earliest evidence in North America of indigenous people. They were hunting bison and using stone tools like spear points and scrapers. But occupation of what is now northern Colorado did not end 13,000 years ago and then start up again when miners moved to the territory. It's long been occupied. Oral histories from leaders and elders of the northern Arapaho tell us that indigenous people have utilized the Kashlapooter River and surrounding valley for thousands of years for clan gathering, ceremonies, and collecting food. So we know that the Kashlapooter River and its valley have been important locations for indigenous people for thousands of years. From down in the river valley, the iconic horsetooth rock on top of the foothills is seen far and wide. When elements of the landscape are so recognizable from far away, it makes a place easy to remember, easy to return to, and easy to hold on to. The Kashlapooter River Valley becomes important to indigenous groups in the region because of its abundance of resources, but also because of its visibility in the foothills that rise out of the flat plains in the east. The council tree, the focus of this episode, grew in this river valley. On the banks of the Kashlapooter stood a 120-foot-tall cottonwood tree for over 100 years. 100 years, 120 feet tall. Imagine the impact of that kind of tree when the land is flat like the plains and there are no multi-story buildings yet to hide it. This massive tree is said to have stood alone on the sandy banks of the Kashlapooter River. And surrounding this tree, the northern Arapaho, well, held council, the council tree. Holding council meant holding gatherings for all 13 bands of the Arapaho Nation. It meant gathering food from the valley, hunting the plentiful game, like the deer and elk that we still see in our green spaces in Fort Collins today. Fishing in the Kashlapooter River 
holding ceremonies and meeting with other indigenous nations in the area. The council tree, or rather the area it was a landmark of, became sacred to the northern Arapaho. Much of what we know about the council tree comes from the mid-1800s. Documents written by new Euro-American settlers to Colorado. To these new settlers, council tree was the place where the northern Arapaho lived and where they met with these inhabitants of the land they were taking. The man early Fort, Col the man early Fort Collins settlers talked to was Warshunin, later known as Chief Friday. Warshunin was the English name given to Chief Friday by the settlers, and this is the name that stuck as far as historical documents and local lore are concerned. He was not a chief, but rather a leader of a local band of northern Arapaho, now the reputation of a peacekeeper. This is because he was educated in a white school in St. Louis early in his life, spoke English, and was an interpreter between indigenous people and the settlers. He and his people lived near Fort Collins, near the council tree, until the late 1860s and early 1870s, when they were forcibly removed from their lands and moved to the Wind, Res Wind River Reservation in northern Wyoming, over 300 miles away. Like the name Chief Friday, the council tree's name comes from Euro-American settlers and not from the northern Arapaho. Almost all historical documents in the archives or in the books on the council tree are written by these early settlers or draw heavily upon their accounts. Settlers saw the northern Arapaho gathering and inviting other indigenous stations to their ceremonies and called it the council tree. So the name comes from the settler accounts and not from the people who are deeply tied to the land. So what becomes of this cotton tree when people who use it as a landmark, as a meeting spot, are forced out? Does it just sit, ignored, or does it take on new life and new meaning? The answer isn't simple. While the northern Arapaho no longer live in Fort Collins or even nearby, the Kashlaputa River Valley and the council tree are still important spaces to them. Elders and leaders of the northern Arapaho still speak of the deep ties they feel to the area of council tree. Crawford White Eagle, the pipe holder for the northern Arapaho, tells us that, quote, we all gathered, had our council, different bands, even different tribes, mainly the Sioux and the Cheyenne. William Hubert Friday, great-grandson and descendant of Chief Friday, describes Council Tree's significance to him as, quote, this was our homeland a long time ago, you know? And when I come down here, it feels like home, but it was. To me, this is our home. We were forced out, but it was home, end quote. Today, the Council Tree is gone. It died and was removed sometime in the late 1940s or early 50s. The documents are clear. There was a movement in the early 1990s to find the correct location of the tree, it having been lost to the decades and removal of those who used it. Louis Trio founder of the Native American service organization called Nightwalker Enterprises, helped identify four tribal elders at Wind River Reservation to guide the city of Fort Collins in this effort. What came of this movement was the creation of the Poudre Heritage Area in Fort Collins. In 1994, 50 people gathered for a blessing of the ground on which the council tree stood. Rapaho ceremonial men led the group in this commemoration. In the last year, the Poudre Heritage Area has published a series of videos with tribal elders like Crawford White Eagle and William Hubert Friday, telling their story in the history of the Northern Arapaho in their own voices. In one of these videos, Crawford White leaves us with this quote, Places like this should be remembered, not only for the tribe, but for our younger people. The community built around the council tree isn't gone. It persists today. Thank you for listening to this discussion of the council tree and the Northern Arapaho history in our town of Fort Collins. And that was part of the Land Grant Chronicle podcast here at KCSU, just updating you on some history of our region that we live in and work in. Next up, we are going to be hearing tech news as well as weird news, so stay tuned on KCSU Fort Collins for the Rocky Mountain Review.
Until Their Home is a Fort Collins-based nonprofit dedicated to reducing the homeless pet population. For approved applicants, they offer behavioral support, supplies, pet sitting, dog walking, and temporary fostering. Until Their Home is also offering rehoming counseling and provides home-to-home rehoming services. They also support Colorado shelters through their Find a Foster program, where they provide a path to adoption for those struggling in shelters. Learn more at untilhome.org. Once again, I am Coda Babcock. You just heard COVID-19 updates, and this is Tech News for Thursday. Facebook video creators are claiming that Facebook is shorting them thousands of dollars in revenue. According to Ashley Carmen at The Verge, Britton Lockhart runs a page called Depths of History, which has 70,000 followers that watch as he scuba dives for treasure. Lockhart says he typically made between $2,000 and $3,000 per month in 2020, but suddenly began receiving under $1,000 in 2021 monthly. Despite the sudden decrease, Facebook's revenue estimation tool still said that he could expect over $3,000 for January and over $1,700 for February. Facebook claims that this is a technical issue they're currently remedying with creators. Hitachi Limited announced their acquisition of Global Logic for $9.6 billion Wednesday. According to Yuri Kagayama from the Associated Press, Global Logic is a U.S. engineering services company based out of Silicon Valley, and Hitachi is an industrial, electronic, and construction conglomerate company based in Tokyo. The acquisition is expected to help strengthen the company's digital operations, especially in IT, energy, industry, and mobility. Global Logic employs over 20,000 people in 14 countries, with an expected revenue of $1.2 billion in 2021's fiscal year. The deal was originally expected to close this summer. Prisoners in federal facilities claim that attorney-client privilege is being harmed by a lack of email privacy. According to Kerry Johnson at National Public Radio, inmates are asked to agree to electronic monitoring in order to use the email system, but the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers say that if inmates don't agree to monitoring, they're locked out of email communications altogether. These concerns were an issue before the pandemic, but critics of the monitoring say they've become worse now that the pandemic creates new concerns over in-person visits. Ken White, a defense lawyer working in California, told NPR that, quote, It's often a multi-hour process to visit someone, even for five minutes, end quote. Another defense lawyer, Peter Goldberg, says that one of his clients had emails to Goldberger used against him in trial. That's all for tech news. We'll be right back with Ivy Winfrey's Weird News in about a minute. So stay tuned. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes we need to get a little bit weird. So here's a couple of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. A young child sparked confusion over the weekend by posting gibberish to the U.S. Strategic Command's social media account. According to the BBC, some feared the U.S. Strategic Command's Twitter page had been hacked after the account posted a series of unintelligible letters and punctuation marks on March 28th. The post existed for only a few minutes before being removed. However, after the news website The Daily Dot submitted a Freedom of Information request, the agency revealed that the tweet had been an accident. The statement from the agency said, quote, The command's Twitter manager momentarily left the command's Twitter account open and unattended. His very young child took advantage of the situation and started playing with the keys, and unfortunately and unknowingly posted the tweet, end quote. The statement also clarified that the Twitter manager was working from home and that the account was not hacked. The United States Strategic Command is an agency in charge of safeguarding America's nuclear weapons. Ravens have been reportedly been attacking 
Costco shoppers in Alaska in stealing their food. According to the Anchorage Daily News, Matt Lawallen said he was packing his groceries into his car in the parking lot of an Anchorage Costco when Raven swooped in to steal a short rib from his cart. Lawallen says that, quote, I literally took 10 steps away and turned around, and two ravens came down and instantly grabbed one out of the package, ripped it off, and flew off with it, end quote. Additional raven thief sightings have emerged on social media. Kimberly Waller wrote on Facebook that, quote, My parents were minding their business after a shop and made it home with one less steak. The bird snatched it right out of the pack in the parking lot, end quote. A manager at an Anchorage Costco declined to comment to the newspaper about the raven thieves. The Anchorage Abaddon Society tallies the raven population in every December. The group reported 923 common ravens in 2018, 621 in 2019, and 750 birds in 2020. Rick Sinnott, a former wildlife biologist with the State Department of Fish and Game, said hundreds of ravens fly to Anchorage in the winter for food. After winter turns to spring, most of the ravens leave, Sinnott said. But... Before they do, the ravens stick around to pluck assorted meats, fruits, and vegetables. Senate says that the ravens are fiercely intelligent, and that, quote, For years, decades, they've watched people in the parking lots and grocery stores with all this food. They know what a piece of fruit looks like in a grocery cart because they've seen it on the ground or seen it in a garbage can, end quote. Residents of an English town are being harassed by a, quote, extremely irritating swan who likes to knock on their doors. According to Claudia DeMuro at the Oregonian, the swan began the bizarre practice of knocking on people's doors roughly five years ago after living in the town with its mate for two years prior to that. One of the irritated homeowners, Stephen Legg, describes the behavior like this, quote, The swan starts by rattling the letterbox and then bashes the metal with its beak quite loudly. The racket reverberates through the whole house and doesn't do any damage, but it's extremely irritating. Sometimes it does it for three hours at a time, other times only once or twice, end quote. A motive behind the bizarre knocking has not been identified, but Legg says that he doesn't feed the swan, so there must be another reason. Wendy Howard, another resident, says that, quote, The swan has been doing it almost every day recently, and I think it's pretty funny to see one walking past, but I'm glad it isn't my house because it is very noisy, end quote. And that's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. KCSU wants to hear your thoughts this April. What do you think is going well in the fight against climate change? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 with your thoughts. build skills in fundraising and donor relations? Get involved with the development department at KCSU. And now, for the weather.
Continuing the trend from the past few days, today we saw sunny skies with a high of 66 and a low of 37, some moderate winds, and no chance of precipitation. Friday, clouds will roll in, but temperatures will continue to increase up to a high of 74 and a low of 41. No chance of rain, but winds will speed up to 11 miles per hour. Saturday, the clouds will head out, leaving Fort Collins with sunny skies and a high of 76 with a low of 44. Sunday, clouds will return, and temperatures will steadily move up to a high of 78 and a low of 47, with winds slowing back down to 9 miles per hour. Monday will be almost identical, but winds will speed back up to 12 miles per hour. Tuesday will cool down slightly, with winds moving up to 13 miles per hour and temperatures reaching a high of 75 and a low of 43. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in next week on Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on KCSU Fort Collins. Information from this segment was provided by the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Gusmarati, Maddie Erskine, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandel, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. stand commercial stations. (laughs) I can't do it. My name is Danny Grant, and I'm the general manager of Mishawaka Amphitheater, and I am on the board of Rocky Mountain Student Media. I really need that interaction with the DJs. It's few and far between. You know, public radio, community radio, college radio is the only place where I can find myself engaging. And at KCSU, I have a connection to this place. This is our university. This is a place that is near and dear to my heart. And so I want to support and I want to listen and I want to be there with the kids finding out what they're finding out. I think it's imperative that people support their local college radio stations. And, you know, if we if we don't do it, we're not going to have the quality students coming out of here. We're not going to draw the best and the brightest here in journalism and in broadcasting. And I think, you know, why wouldn't you? We get so much from it. What's five, 10 bucks a month to support something that we're enjoying every day? Consider helping us continue to share excellent content with you by becoming a member of Club 905. Donate only $7.50 a month by calling 970-491-5278 or online at kcsufm.com backslash donate. Hi, I'm Jimmy from Dubs, and you are listening to KZSU.